on this episode of The Jason Wright Show. So when I started doing stand-up comedy, it was because I finally realized that I was positioned to do it in the way that I wanted to. And what I mean by that is I grew up as a kid that was always the funny kid. I was a class clown. I didn't have any problem cracking jokes. And a lot of times it got me in trouble by pushing lines and saying things that were, you know, inappropriate and whatnot. And, but I, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed um, my wit and developing that into a sharper wit because I recognized as I was a fan of comedy my whole life that the best comedians are ridiculously smart. Hey guys, it's Jason. You know I am the improve always and always guy. Have you ever wanted to live the improve always and always lifestyle day in and day out? Well, guess what? There's an app for that. It's the Vitruvian Lab. And you can go to the Apple Store right now and download it for free. And I got to tell you about my latest course. It's Massively Transformative Habits, MTH. This is a course where I not only give you the science Backed research of those universal habits that every single one of us need to adopt for better health, better thinking, better relationships, living longer and living healthier. But also, I give you the behavioral science that will help you understand how to make these behaviors habits. It's one thing to know what you should be doing, it's another thing to know how to start habits. But combining the two, knowing exactly what you should be doing every single day of your life for a more joyful, fulfilling life, a healthier life, and also how to make those habits stick. It's all in Massively Transformative Habit. Here's where you can learn all about it. JasonWrightNow.com forward slash M-T-H. JasonWrightNow.com forward slash M-T-H. Go out to the App Store, download the Vitruvian Lab for free. Then go over and check out jasonrightnow.com forward slash MTH. There's only going to be 50 slots for this initial cohort. I want you to check it out. If you have any questions, contact me. Find out if this is right for you. I would love to talk to you. That's jasonrightnow.com forward slash MTH. Check out Massively Transformative Habits. Now, enjoy the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I almost forgot the best part. Because you are a Jason Wright Show listener, you get $100 off the course should you decide to take it. All you have to do is put in promo code podcast at the checkout and you get the course for $100 off. Check it out. Promo code podcast. Go right now. JasonRightNow.com forward slash MTH. I will see you there. Bryce Prescott, dude, I am so excited to have you on the Jason Wright Show. How you doing, brother? I'm doing excellent, man. How are you, Jason? I'm well. All right. So you and I talked about it a little bit off camera. I'm going to tell everyone kind of how I came across Bryce Prescott. So I interviewed Wes Austin, a dude that I just think is hilarious. He's a stand-up comedian. He's making incredible shorts. And so I had him on. And then in my research of Wes or going back and looking at some of his past content or whatever, I saw that he was on your podcast and then I start learning more about Bryce Prescott. And I'm like, dude, this is a guy that's very much like me in this sense. So it's funny. 
I actually had some family members, Bryce, here recently. We were at lunch and they said, you know, one of the hardest questions that we can ever answer is whenever people say, so what is Jimlin's husband? That's my wife, Jimlin. What does Jimlin's husband do? What does Jason do? And my <laughs> sister-in-law is like, we really don't know. He has a podcast. He teaches some classes. He, you know, we don't know. And I'm like, I'm okay with that. I like being kind of the international man of mystery. Yep. And you have a very similar path. There's not many people like us that trying to get a hold of what we actually do for a living, I guess you would say. He's like trying to get a handful of jello. But we're we're very close to the same age, again, just from listening to your stuff. And so what I want you to do is just try to give this audience the elevator pitch of who Bryce Prescott is, what punches your buttons, and what do you get up every day trying to conquer? Who Who are you, man? Well, that's a loaded question. Good grief, man. <laughs> but I'm, I'm thankful to be here. And, and just before I get, get into this, Jason, thank you for the opportunity. I, I honor the time, the consideration, everything. I'm excited for this conversation and where it goes. Who is Bryce Prescott? That's a very uh, interesting question for uh, nobody but me, I guess. The, <laughs> the, uh, I'm, I'm just a guy that really enjoys growth. I enjoy laughter. I think the important things in my life are connection. And I'm very passionate about the things that I'm passionate about. I care about people. Um, I've lived my life being willing to be a fool, I think, in that I try things that uh, you have to suck at at first to be able to achieve anything at. And it's I, I feel that I'm just a, an expert at stumbling towards excellence. Like I just kind of figure things out along the way. And then when opportunities present themselves, I take advantage of them. Um, I enjoy the craft of stand-up comedy. I've been doing that for a little over five years. I'm a headlining comedian. I've done, I've done gigs and headlining in Vegas and LA here in Utah. I'm still on the, the, the newer end of it, but, uh, it's, it's a passion of mine. I'm the founder of a company called media automated, which is a full service podcast consulting agency. And, uh, we offer all of the automation that you would want if you're an entrepreneur that needs your podcast handled. Uh, that's paid my bills in a very beautiful way. That's allowed me the freedom to go into things like stand-up comedy and not needing money and not being in a compromised position. I'm married. Uh, I have four children. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've been married to my wife for 17 and a half years. We're coming up on 18 years. Um, and uh, I just, I live here in Salt Lake City, Utah. I love people. I love laughter. I love fast cars. I, I just love life. I really enjoy uh, all that it's had to offer. And I'm not afraid to go and try to get more of it. Don't you think it's kind of, all right. So for guys like us that, that just, like I told you before we got on, I think that one of the things that we have in common is that essentially we're trying to just squeeze every last drop of juice out of this thing called life as, yeah. as we can. And, and also I think that's because of something else I learned about your past is we have a, uh, we share a faith. And so we know that this is but a vapor. We know we're just kind of going, this is all going to be gone really quickly. And so why not kind of go out with the, 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 the tank empty, the tires bald, and just, just go all out. That's what we, and so, but in a positive and good way. Uh, so one of the things that I love about what you're doing is the fact that you're, you're um, injecting comedy into the situation. I told you, I would love to do some stand-up. I love that. And it's, you know, Talk a little bit about as you've gone through your journey, because I can't imagine, and maybe you have, maybe you've stepped up to the plate and jacked a home run every single time, but that's that's usually very rare for someone no, who has had a great deal close. of success. <laughs> yeah, usually someone that's had a great deal of success like yourself, that is not the case because it's those moments in the valley where the good stuff grows and then we pull it out. So talk to this audience about a couple things. One, 
how has laughter sustained you through some of those times of, you know, whether it's entrepreneurship, whatever the case may be, and then any of those failures that you fought back from and the philosophy that either got you through it or you developed as as a result of it. Tell this audience about some of those times. Sure. Well, let me give you some backstory for context here, because I'm thinking of one instance that I had a conversation with a friend of mine that really kind of hit home the point that I think would really serve your audience here. So when I started doing stand-up comedy, it was because I finally realized that I was positioned to do it in the way that I wanted to. And what I mean by that is I grew up as a kid that was always the funny kid. I was the class clown. I didn't have any problem cracking jokes. And a lot of times it got me in trouble by pushing lines and saying things that were you know, inappropriate and whatnot. And, but I, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed um, my wit and developing that into a sharper wit because I recognized as I was a fan of comedy my whole life that the best comedians are ridiculously smart. They're sharp, they're witty, they have a command of the language, they understand timing, they understand presence and awareness. And it's a, it's a very performative art that looks disheveled from the outside, but to get that look of disheveledness and seeming improvisation, it takes a lot of skill and deliberate scripting. And so I was, I was fascinated by that. But at the same time, I cared about things like meditation and about having uh, clarity in my life and doing work internally so that I was overcoming bad habits or internal beliefs about my sis- myself or what was available to me. And that led me down a more serious road because, you know, there was a time when I, w- I did a lot of life coaching, actually. And I'm in the middle of, you know, trying to create a business out of being a consultant and a life coach. And I, I kept internally pushing up against this barrier of like, well, a life coach doesn't crack a dick joke. Like a life <laughs> coach doesn't, you know, say things like that. And so I, I found myself in this box because I, I didn't know how to bridge the two worlds of, you know, the metaphysical reality that we are creators of our experience and that we have all the power and resource available to us to have whatever life that we want and comedy and irreverence and that, you know, form of, of laughter. Throughout my entire life, laughter has served me well in that it feels good. I love laughing. I get a kick out of getting other people to laugh. So that elevates my energy and how I feel about myself. Well, I was feeling stuck about this, and I actually stumbled across this documentary that was really transformative for me on HBO. It was called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. And for those of that don't know who Gary Shandling is, he was a very famous comedian. He was a very transformational and pioneering television star because his show on HBO, the Larry Sanders show was the first sort of docu style show that you see all the time now in in shows like the office and parks and rec. Yep. Watching this documentary, I started learning that a lot of the personal things that he had in his life were similar to mine and that he, he was a practicing Buddhist. I'm not a Buddhist, but he meditated, he cared about energy. He wanted to have people be love, feel loved and, and have, you know, good vibes around him. He comported himself in that way. And he was very beloved by the people that, uh, that appreciated him as well as being this savage comedian a very prolific comedy writer, a great performer. He ended up as, you know, later in his life, he was acting and he was in some of the Iron Man movies as a congressperson. Like he's, he has an incredible career. And I'm watching this, it's a long documentary. It's in two parts for a total of four hours. And I'm feeling a connection to this man. Like he did it. He was able to bridge the one side of the softness of life and love and care and growth and, you know, internal discovery and health 
and this sort of irreverent, sarcastic, very, uh, you know, commentarian type of uh, performance of stand-up and comedy and being funny. I'm like, that's me. I could do that. So I felt in those moments, like I was almost giving, I was given permission by the late great Gary Shandling through watching his documentary. I went then to do open mic for the first time in March of 2017. And uh, I just ate shit for three minutes, but I had one really good laugh and it got me. And I started, I started the process of failing a lot in standup. So I, one of the things that I love about laughter and standup comedy is that it's a tell. If I can get you to laugh about something irreverent or off color or out of bounds, I now know your real feelings about that subject. Mm. You can't hide it. And so there's a power in that, I think. And also it's, like I said, I, it's very, very difficult. You know, you talk about failing and stumbling and things like the the process of getting good at comedy is 98% failing and then 2% wins. That's why most comics are neurotic is because they deal in the face of failure all the time. The example that I wanted to share with you from a conversation I had as a friend of mine in relation to this was very interesting because I found myself dreading going to open mic and doing performances because I wasn't as good as I wanted to be. And I was having these period, these lull periods in my performances where I was disconnected from the crowd. It was harder to keep them engaged. I'm just starting learning this skill set. And it's a very like nuanced, tight skill set to learn that you learn at three minutes at a time, five minutes at a time. So it's like you can literally go to four open mics in a week and you've only spent 15 minutes total on stage. Like it's kind of a crazy concept when you think about it. I was feeling this dread every time I went and it was manifesting itself in that I was bombing. I wasn't doing well on stage. And this friend of mine, she said to me, she says, well, why are you creating that for yourself? It seems as if you're using the bombing as an experience to validate your own unworthiness for being good at something. And I started thinking about it. And it's like during those times in my life, I had been struggling with certain things. I was having some self-worthiness issues as far as my own success and my own relevance and feeling like I was worth it and everything. And she was exactly right. I was putting myself in a position to be punished because that's what I thought I was worth. Wow. When I changed that and I go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to mix this up. I'm not going to go perform stand-up comedy, whatever it is, unless I'm in a good headspace and I don't care if I bomb, I'm there to have fun. And when I switched that, Lots changed for me. The people I was willing to hang out with changed for me. The opportunities that I was being presented changed for me because all of a sudden my energy was a successful energy. It was vibing high. It was, ah, oh, there's Bryce. Ha <laughs> Like it was a good thing. And that conversation was very transformed because I, I realized we do that a lot. That's not even just a stand-up comedy thing. We do that a lot. We put ourselves in positions to fail so that we can be reminded that we suck. It's That's very so weird why we do so this. So true. So true. Yeah. Well, God, man. See, okay, here's the this is the problem about having a guest like you on, bro. I'm just gonna be honest. Like going to a buffet <laughs> and there's just so much to eat. I don't know where to start because I don't want to spoil my appetite and miss the really good stuff. You know, I don't want to get wait too late to eat the best thing and I'm already full. So this is really tough for me because all right, so I want to stick with the comedy for a little bit because sure. you touched on something there that um I think a lot of people take for granted. They see guys like, you know, old school Eddie Murphy. I mean, all the way back to Richard Pryor, Sam Kennison, George Carlin, all these guys. They see them. And then fast forward a little bit to Jerry Seinfeld. And they think, oh, these guys are just, like you said, they're class clowns. They're funny. It's no big deal to stand up. But yet, have you um, have you read Jerry Seinfeld's Is Is This Anything? I haven't, no. Oh, brother, you'd love it. it. You'd love yeah. it. 
So the cool thing, and I'm just going to stick with Jerry Seinfeld for a moment because I think he obviously being as successful as he is and anyone that listens to this podcast, even if they've never seen Seinfeld, they're going to know who Jerry Seinfeld is. When you understand the work ethic and how hard he worked and how disciplined he was to do the thing he wanted to do more than anything else in the world, then I think there's inspiration beyond just being a, a, a comic. He had, I mean, like he will talk about how he will obsess over, like he sits down and he write, he's going to write for an hour a day. And where it happened was when uh, Mitzi Shore, he goes out to Mitzi Shore's at, uh, what, she's the comedy store right out in yeah, L.A. She was, she's, she's since passed, but yeah, yeah. it's Polly Shore's mother, yep. and it's uh, the owner of the, the former owner of the comedy store. Okay, so. In, well, excuse me, the comedy store in Hollywood. There's one in San Diego as well. But Okay, so do you know this story about Seinfeld whenever he wanted to perform there? No. Okay, so he goes from the East Coast out to the West Coast, and he's going to try to, you know, he's been doing the, the uh, comic scene in New York for some time, and he wants to go out to L.A., and that's the first place he goes is to uh, to Mitzi Shore's place. And he's trying to get on for stand-up. And he's never getting called. He's never getting called. And finally, he goes back to her office and he meets with her. And he said, I just want to let you know, whatever I have to do, I'm available. I'm here. I'm going to keep showing up. And she said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially, yeah, you're never going to perform here. I don't like you. I don't like your comedy. You're never going to perform at my club. And incidentally, Jerry Seinfeld has never performed at the comedy store, Hollywood, never done. Yeah. And he left that day. And this is the cool thing. And I would imagine this is probably going to tee up some mindset training for this audience for you to, to dispel or to, to unleash Bryce. Jerry Seinfeld described that day as obviously just a, a kick in the balls. Sure. But he but he left there and he decided from that day forward, he would sit down and he would write for one hour a day, no matter what, ass in this chair, looking at the clock, even if he didn't have anything to write, he would not he would not yield to the practice of or he would totally yield to the practice of being a professional comic and writing. And from that day forward, that's whenever he took his comedy more serious than he ever had. So it was kind of like. That kick in the balls, that failure that he suffered, that this lady said, you're never going to perform here, is part of what drove what's now arguably one of the best comedians of all time. So you talking about putting yourself in a position where you're failing, but you learned through that. Talk to this audience a little bit about how it's kind of like what Winston Churchill said, you know, success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm, which you figured out how to do. What other areas of life have has this dream of comedy and going through those bombs, those three minutes that led to 12 minutes after five sets of failure, and then you finally starting to realize, hey, wait a minute, I do deserve to be on this stage. First of all, I've got the balls to get up there, and secondly, I can do this. How has that translated into success in your other life? Or, or, or your, not your other life, but just other sure. things in life? Well, there's a couple of things I want to bring up before I answer that question to you about Seinfeld. I hadn't heard that story, but it's a, it's, it rings true in, it's a similar story that I've heard about Gary Shandling, that he had a similar experience with Mitzi and Mitzi was just, I mean, she was a pioneer in comedy and because of her relationship with Johnny Carson and the tonight show, she was a gatekeeper to some of the most famous comedians that you've ever seen in the sixties and or excuse me, seventies and eighties. 
she was kind of a bitch too. Like she had, it was very unreasonable. If you would go do sets at like the laugh factory or the improv and she found out about it, you were cut out of the comedy store. Like she just, she was kind of a tyrant. Wow. Gary Shanley had a funny, a, a similar thing where she's like, I don't think you're funny. You're not good at performing whatever. And, and he had a connect. I, I want to say that he had a connection to somebody that was in her world that had her ear and was like, dude, just, give him spots, let him do this. And so reluctantly, she gave him time there and he was able to work that through. Seinfeld is a very interesting comedian for me because he is surgically sharp when it yeah. comes to his stand-up and performance. Mm -hmm. I've seen uh, his documentary, Comedian, mm -hmm. and he, he'll go up on stage and he'll have his little book out and he'll, he'll have these jokes that he's written and just like split testing an email campaign to see which things work, he'll he'll do a joke and change the intonation, exact same words, change the intonation in one part of it, change it to try to see which gets the best hit over time. He's very studious that way, which not a lot of comedians are. Yeah. A lot of comedians don't have that sort of willpower to be that studious about them. And that's wherein a different genre of comedy has opened up to where it's more of the storytelling type. And they have these funny way, these funny people have funny ways of telling funny stories that don't have your traditional setup punchline format, but they do when you look at it at a deeper level. So I appreciate that reminder of just the work ethic there. I want to also dispel something that you said. I have had plenty of bouts of lack of enthusiasm with comedy. Mm. Tons of, I've had, I've been, I've been in my hotel room in Las Vegas, Nevada, ready to ho ready to headline and feel trying in my mind to weasel out of it. Like I never would, of course, but like, man, I'm not, I'm not feeling prepared. I don't uh, like I'm freaking out about this. And then I just push through it and I do it anyway. And of course, at the end of it, it goes way better than I would because that neuroses, if you will, forces a hyper level of, pre of, of preparation so that I'm ready to go. And that has proven throughout my comedy career. I mean, I headlined for the first time 14 months after my first open mic. That's, it wasn't very good for an hour, but at least it was a full hour that I put together on myself. And I can say that I did it. A lot of comics are scared to death to be their show and to have it be that way. Um, for me, as far as how it's translated, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I recognize that no matter what the pursuit is, in order to be successful at it, you have to fall in love with the process just as much as you have to fall in love with the result. If you don't like the process or you, you push against the process, you're never going to get the result because it's the excellence and the commitment in the process that creates the better result. And so whether it's building my podcasting company or doing stand-up or things with my family or my own personal pursuits, being in shape, for example, physically, like you have to fall in love with the process. You just don't get ripped and shred city and then stop. Like that's right. not how this works. Right. So it's translated ever. You know, one of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of T. Harv, T. Harv Ecker. He wrote the book Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, mm -hmm. which if you haven't read that book, it's a very incredible book, super easy read. I jokingly say it's a toilet read. Like you could sit down while you're taking a deuce and read through it. <laughs> it's, the, it's not that heady, you know, it's just, oh, right. that's great. That's great. That's great. He says, you know, awareness is the first step to create change. And it's like, if you're not aware of the thing, you can't make change. And so I'm looking at this going to say, well, I have to be aware and, and acknowledge that, yeah, I don't like this part, but I'm okay with it because I see the result. And there's power in that. Um, for me, being behind the scenes, so to speak, and off, off mic, if you will, as a comedian, you realize how it's it's a pretty messed up industry, man. There's very, very few like people that have their shit together. 
there's a lot of broken people in that industry. Yeah. I've actually had some issues. You know, you, you talked with my good friend, uh, Wes Austin, he's experienced a little bit of this as well. I've had some issues in that. I'm not, I'm not a bum. I'm not a failure. I have a good life. I, I do the things that I love because I love them. I've actually had a lot of resistance from even in here in the local Salt Lake scene pushback where it's like, I'm not accepted as that type of comedian because there are some that believe that comedy is born out of struggle yeah. and that you have to have had pain to be able to really be funny. Right now there's a, there's a portion of that. That's true. Like it's a coping mechanism to take difficult situations and make laughter out of them. Yep. And I do that myself. Like if you've ever seen my act, I talk about having had cancer and I have a whole joke about that experience. And I talk about, you know, the divorce of my parents and I talk about issues in my own family with my wife and things, difficult, challenging, emotionally, you know, trying circumstances. And I make them funny as hell because the circum the, the situation itself isn't funny. It's not funny that I got cancer, but what is funny is all the stuff around that as a new sort of, push on my identity that I've had from institutions and things and then my resistance to it and then other things. And there's really no way you can joke about anything, literally anything. If you don't poke at the thing, you poke at the thing around the thing. Mm. So there's funny rape jokes. There's funny incest jokes. There's funny pedophile jokes. Like, and those are horrible, horrible subjects, but the things around them, you can find hilariously funny because humans are pretty dumb a lot of times and they do things that are funny. So I hope that answered your question. I kind of got rambling on there, but I, I feel that the, the way that comedy in that is, it's not that I have some sort of like, you know, bulletproof confidence all the time. I, I'm, I've become very ultra sensitive about my jokes. And, and fortunately, like my wife is very kind and she's really funny herself. And so like, we'll be, she'll help me flush things out and be, I think this is funny. I think this could be really, really funny. And she'll give me some sort of feedback and then I'll, you know, go try it on stage. And if, if squeezing that fruit on stage creates the juice, then I go towards the next aspect of it. But it's a very, you know, speaking of loving the process, there's not a lot of confidence that comes in the creation of comedy. It's yeah. not like I sit back and go, you know what? I just wrote the best joke ever. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, I hope they like it. <laughs> right. And it is what it is, but it has filled my tank in a way that allows me in the other parts of my world to know, cause that, the, the leap to success is way shorter. It just requires consistency. That's, that's the superpower for any comedian, for any entrepreneur, for anybody. The mindset of consistency, that you just break it down day by day. You, you, know, you eat the elephant one bite at a time, so to speak. You keep at that, and you'll find yourself far, far ahead of anybody. I recently posted a video on my Instagram where I talk about how a consistent idiot will by it. far and away outperform an inconsistent genius. Yep. yep. And it doesn't, it doesn't take brains to be successful. It just takes consistency. And then enough brain to surround yourself with the people that are stronger, the things you're weak at so that you can, and you just have to sell the vision at that point. Yeah. I could not agree more. And I actually saw that post and I thought, man, that is genius because, and, and it, it hit them to me because a lot of the, and you can speak to this firsthand, obviously, because you've kind of done one of the things that, so I've thought about many times chasing that rabbit of building a podcast company where it's not just my show, my show, kind of like what uh, Ben Shapiro is doing with Daily Wire, although sure. he has a wildly successful, you know, show himself. He's a wildly successful talent that has built this, you know, ecosystem around him. Right. I want because that's the thing that I love to do is I see a lot of people and you, you've probably done this with your podcast company. You see these people 
like a Wes Austin and you go, dude, do you understand what a podcast could do for you, your brand? And by the way, you just be good at it. It's kind of like the, the music producer that sees someone and goes, hey, you got some chops and we should get you record in the recording studio right now. And so I've always thought that would be really fun. And so I have researched the business of podcasting, not just because I'm in it, but for other reasons. And one of the things that you just touched on there, like in our world of podcasting, there are so few hosts out there with a hundred plus episodes. It is yeah. just almost unheard of. And so it's funny whenever I hear people. Do you, do you know what the average number of episodes is for a podcast? No, I don't. What is it? Seven. <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, that does not surprise average me at all. Number. <laughs> There's over two and a half million podcasts on Apple Podcasts and the lot of them have seven or less. <laughs> it's insane. And that and that's and that's what I knew about this show is that I went into it. It was one of the few things there was a long time ago, man. It's probably been over a decade ago. I had a, um, I had a, a, an internet radio show, man. This is right before podcasts. And so I just was like, okay, first of all, I'm not getting any success. I mean, I, I would have like 50 people listen. And that was it. Your live stream on the internet, you know, a terrible right. format, right? Terrible platform. Using Ustream right back in the oh, day. Yeah, Ustream. That's what we used. That's exactly what we used. We used Ustream. That's yeah. so funny, man. And so I was like, I'm out. And I didn't stick with it. So whenever I started the podcast, I was like, you know what? I don't care if I'm still going at this for when I'm 90. It's I'm gonna I'm in this. I'm not gonna give up. And then when I heard the statistics from one of my buddies, James Quandall, he said, dude, he said the the number of podcasts or podcasters that have a hundred episodes or more, it's less than 10% of all podcasts out there. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to grind away and I have fun with the process. I mean, look, you and I getting to talk today, this is part of the process that this podcast has afforded me, which, I mean, it's like a free education from someone that I didn't know before who has incredible wisdom. It's just, and, and, and so few people are willing to grind it out. It's something where the feedback loop is so freaking long. I mean, and you do, I mean, you know, in a podcast, especially because like these days, you know, oh, I've got a podcast. Yeah. Well, who the hell doesn't, you know? I mean, it's like, it, it, it's like, well, how many have the episode? So whenever I saw that post from you about just showing up every day, I was like, man, that really hits home. And before it, before it escapes me, I got to tell you about another book that you, if you haven't read, you would absolutely love about comedy is uh, Steve Martin's Born Standing Up. Have you read that one? Yeah, that's amazing. It's a classic, dude. Be it, so good they can't ignore you. That's one. Uh, that's like, it. That's it. And then Cal Newport takes that and, and basically makes a bestseller out of the the same uh, the same yeah. kind of deal, you know. And so, and everything that you said in your story about comedy and so, and and like guys like Steve Martin and stuff is that they're willing to just keep showing up day in and day yeah. out. And I think that's part of the success of life. Now, I want to talk a little bit about something that's really passionate. The closest thing I have to a hobby is health and wellness in the headspace. So I want to know where that started with you. And then look, it's kind of like you can't be a prophet in your own city. This audience hears me every week. I want someone else to come in and talk about how when you decide to start pulling the levers of your health, your your headspace, your you're controlling your blood sugar. Uh, you're, it's not just vanity anymore. You're like looking at not just lifespan. We're all going to live longer, you know, unless we get hit by a bus or something, but it's more about health span. When did that start to really ring for you, Bryce? And then tell this audience as a testimonial of just how much sweeter life can be if you walk through it really healthy, mentally, emotionally, physically. Talk about that a little bit. 
Sure, glad to. Let me let me address something real quick though before I, I answer that question again, if that's okay. Absolutely, bro. So, I wanted to make something clear about my my business, Media Automated. I don't go headhunting for people thinking, oh, you're a great host, we could do this. My my niche and my expertise, if you will, is I figured out how to create shows that are completely engineered to appeal to a specific listener. And so a lot of my clients are in the consulting space and the coaching space, and they have a certain ideal avatar, if you will, that they're trying to reach. And I come in in the, in the consulting process of creating a new show, and I walk them through understanding how to match up where their strength is in their messaging to the pain points and the needs of the people that could be that could use their direction and their guidance. And it's 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 made me a very lucrative business and something that I don't know if there's anybody else like me in the world in the way that I do it. I focus on the front end on the consulting. I create you as a better host. I train you on how to be able to handle the success of a good show. Most people, you know, when you talk about mindset, they make shows for themselves. Mm -hmm. I think this show would be good. And then six people listen to it. And it takes a lot of work to maintain a podcast. It's not, even when you have help, it yeah. takes a lot of attention and attention, excuse me, intention and attention. And so they, they pillar out at that seventh episode. And then you have that crazy stat that I shared yep. where I was looking at this as a way similar to what you had shared and that I got into the podcast space because I wanted an excuse to meet people without having to pay them. <laughs> I didn't want to have to pay for somebody's coaching, but if I have a platform that could benefit them, I can have a conversation with them and then it ends up being something that is beneficial to both of us. Yeah. Um, the, the creation of a good host and the willingness to do that stems from my beginnings in the self-development journey, actually. So answering your question, when it first became... I remember this, it was a very interesting kind of alarming conversation I had with my ex-wife. Um, my ex-wife came from a very large Mormon family, nine kids, you know, all sorts of church leadership in, in their uh, lineage and a, a very sort of resist, a lot of resistance to self-development because they had felt that it in a way you know, took away from the scriptures, if you mm -hmm. will. So it's like, if you're going to read a self-development book, why aren't you reading the Bible or the whatever, you know? Right. And I remember one time I was given by a friend of the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Yep. At the time, I was going to BYU in Provo, Utah. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Covey lives in Provo. He's just right up the street on the hill by the Provo Temple. And I started reading this book and I was very taken by it. I'm like, this is an amazing book. And I started sharing some of these ideas with my ex-wife and she wanted nothing to do with it. Really? nothing to do with it really yeah and i'm like okay well fast forward several years later we're not married anymore i'm married to my current wife and i stumble across this book secrets of the millionaire mind by t harv ecker the one that i referenced earlier in our conversation i was given that book by her father now he's since passed but to know my wife's dad he wasn't a self-development guy he wasn't the type of guy that you'd look at and go dude He's going to give me the next whatever book. Like he was a very kind of strongly opinionated conservative man that would slap his hand on the table and just had all these opinions, but he ran across this book and he loved it. He gave me a copy of it. I read it and we found out about this event in Denver, Colorado. That was a three day event. And from Salt Lake, you know, Denver's a six, seven hour drive. Yeah. And so we hop in the car and we go to that with my wife's parents. So it's the four of us in a hotel. We're going to this event. And that event completely transformed because it brought the reality into my experience that your thoughts are things. The thing that you think about 
is a frequency. It's like a radio emission. It's like you have that thought. We, we've never, a lot of people haven't considered what their thoughts actually are. Like we can envision picture in our minds through thought. We can hear voice through our thought. We can even create emotional feelings based off of our thoughts that evoke feelingness in our body based off of our thoughts. Like it's an actual creative energetic frequency. And I'm learning all these new things about just the reality of our thoughts and what that means as far as the creation of our lives and how it makes us think about certain things or doesn't. And, and I really, I really find myself attracted to that. I come home and I'm on fire and uh, I, I meet a, up with an old friend of mine and we decided to start a real estate business. And it was basically the first time I ever became a millionaire was through this real estate business that I started with my friend. My friend at the time introduced me to, I think is one of the most transformational books on wealth, mindset, and the law of attraction that is written. And it's called The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace D. Waddles. Okay. He goes into this book in a very pragmatic way. There's no sort of whimsical prose. It's not written like literature. It's written like an instruction manual. It basically says, like, if you want to get rich, do this. We've proven through countless times this works. Do this. And it talks about, you know, submitting our thoughts into the formless substance and knowing exactly what we want and having our energies line up with the feelingness that we want. You're never going to be rich in your moment now. For example, if you can't feel rich now without the external validation of that, and that has to do with success and love and everything. And that book led me into another book, which helped me in my spiritual journey, because a lot of this was kind of bumping up against limiting beliefs that I'd had based off of my background of growing up as a Mormon. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, you know, life is a test and not a creative opportunity and all these sort of like weaving in and out of like, well, you know, God wants you to earn your station after your pass, but yet I'm looking around and there's all these people that are members of the church, ridiculously wealthy, have all the things they want. I'm like, well, why can't I have that too? And it just became this sort of weird internal dialogue. I read this other book called Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. Yeah. And that book set the course for the rest of my life. Because it gave me, if you haven't read the book or you don't know the story of Neil Donald Walsh, he's a very fascinating man. He had this habit in his, in his life where whenever he would be in situations where he felt offense or that he wasn't, didn't like or whatever, he would write a letter to the person or the thing or whatever. So if he had a run-in with his kid that went bad, he'd write a letter to his kid and then he would crumple up the letter. It was this exercise of getting out the emotion and, and verbalizing it. Well, he was in his 50s. He had a broken neck. He was homeless, living in a tent in a park in Ashland, Oregon. And he's got his legal pad out and he's just, he's pissed at God. He's like, what the, f why? I'm a good person. Everything's just strange. I got no money. I don't understand this. And he's writing this letter to God. And when he resolves the letter, he feels God writing back answers. And it's written like a dialogue. Like you're watching wow. God respond to these questions. And whether or not you believe that he actually received it from God is irrelevant. The ideas that he presents are very thought provoking. And that helped me to sort of fine tune the beliefs that I'd had about God, about Jesus, about my own worth, about repentance, about the atonement of Jesus Christ, all these really heavy sort of religious topics and realize, oh, not only am I related to God, I'm his kid. Mm -hmm. I don't treat my kids like shit. Why would I? I don't want to believe he's not some heady authoritarian like, like, no, dude, I can be friends with God. And the idea of being friends with God blew my mind and it made me like start to ask 
more regularly, well, okay, so if I'm not, I don't have what I want, I'm experiencing frustration and fear and lack and all that, like, well, what's up, pops? How do I work this out? You know, I'm, I'm at a loss. And it just, it, it kind of took off a lot of the hard edges about life to where failures didn't even feel like failures anymore. Successes felt like they were totally good. I allowed myself to change my identity. That was another thing that I learned in the whole self-development mindset space. That if you want to, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a hierarchy. If you want to change your behavior on anything, there's a hierarchy in which to do it. If you want the changes to last, most people think if they want to change the behavior, they want to start working out, they want to you know eat better, whatever, they have to put the things in place to make that an easier choice and remove the things, which, in a way, works for a time, mm-hmm. but. When you look at the hierarchy, the hierarchy is actually that your, your behaviors are governed by your beliefs mm-hmm. and your beliefs are governed by your values. Mm-hmm. Your values are governed by your identity. Yep. And so if you want to cut the line and have really quick success and really quick shifts in behaviors away from things that aren't serving you, you have to change your identity. You have to look at yourself differently and see yourself as I'm already a healthy person the evidence of that will show itself soon enough. What does a healthy person do? What are the things that they say? How do they live? I'm already a wealthy person. What do rich people do? How do they? I'm a successful comedian. What does this? I've never sold out an arena, but I'm going to see myself as a successful comedian. What things do successful comedians do? Oh, Seinfeld was successful. He does. Okay. So like the identity is the basis now. And it makes it so much easier because of course you're going to do the thing that backs up your identity because you always have. That's the point. How you see yourself, listener, right now, how you see yourself is what's dictating what you allow into your life. If you want to change what you allow into your life, change how you see yourself. And you will all of a sudden find things just drifting away because they don't have any room anymore with how you see yourself differently. Brother. That is like, that is gold. You just dropped, I mean, a bucket of gold on this audience. And it's something that I've struggled with for years and years and years until, you know, because we have our, our past, how our parents raised us, the things that the environment, the way that we were taught to. And the identity-based habits thing is something that I could, one of my favorite stories ever that you just brought to mind was I had a buddy of mine. And, and like I said, I'm like you, I mean, I want to do everything I can to be healthy and live long. And when I'm 90, I want to still be able to get down and, you know, play with my great grandchildren. I don't want to just be old and sitting there kind of watching. And so I was kind of coaching one of my buddies who is a very successful, uh, executive, but he's always struggled with his weight and kind of health issues. And, and one of his business partners is another really healthy guy. And he kept speaking in terms of, well, you know, like you and this other guy and you and this other, you, you healthy guys. And I, I finally just said, hey, dude, stop. I mean, we, we're having this conversation. You've decided to make this decision. You are one of us. You are a healthy guy. You, yeah. you can't, it can't be, uh, you know, you guys do this. No, it's, we do this. This is what we do. This is how we live. And man, that, and you talking about Gary Shandling, it reminded me of like, what I'm going through right now, Bryce, is uh, Stephen Pressfield, um, the, the author that wrote Gates yeah, of Fire, uh, Legends War of Art. Yep, yeah. War, oh God, so amazing. Uh, the, the War of Art is one of the greatest books for any creative that's out there. Yep. But like with Stephen Pressfield, I'm looking at someone who I, I would love to be, uh, make my living writing. I, it just, it's a creative outlet. 
it's something I love to do. And whenever I, you learn the journey that Stephen Pressfield went through, I mean, it took him, I think he had been writing for over 30 years before he wrote the novel, The, the Legend of Bagger Vance, which, is his, which is, was his first novel to ever yeah. you know, have any success at all. And, but I, and so when I, when I read that, it, it lets me see, and to, to your point, there are so many examples out there of, of other people that did it. We don't have to, we don't have to do it. We don't have to be the pioneer. We can go look and go, well, there's the example. It's not exactly like mine, but I'm like that. I'm struggling like that. I had those same desires. And then one of the things you said, brother, that is something that I have to remind myself of often. Yes. Being a child of God and having God, like we have God within us. I mean, when you look, if, if he if he were to, you know, I mean, well, dare dare we even say we are a version of him? That exactly, we are, and that's the thing, man. I mean, the and and I, when I stop every once in a while and just just kind of you know just just rest in that, then it go. I go, whoa, it, it, why am I worried about this? Why am I concerned? I, I mean. I I I, sh- I, sh- I have more power than I can even fathom. And here's the thing too: what I have, what I do a lot, and I think a lot of people do this, is we limit our faith by we limit God by our own understanding of our own abilities, right? So I limit what God can do based upon what I think just Jason can do. And that's just, that's selling, that's selling God way short, you know? Uh, So I'm glad you brought that up. I learned this, I learned this, this, uh, I learned this little kind of, it sounds cheesy to call it a life hack, but it works. In the Conversations with God series of books, especially book one, he talks about how you can never receive anything from a place of lack. So the mere petitioning of something is acknowledging you don't have it, which means you're not going to get it. Mm. And it's like, so let's let's unpack that. So if I ask for something I don't have, I'm acknowledging I don't have it, which means I won't get it because there's not a match. There's not a frequency match of the experience. And that the, the linear nature of time is what kind of mucks this whole thing up for us because we are looking at it in an A plus B equals C type thing when it's like there's all these things that float around in the middle that could you know truly manifest what you want immediately um, if we understood the power that we have. With that, it's... a uh, we have to be thankful in advance for things that we want without being attached to having to get them. Mm. So what I mean by that is like, let's look at this from a very remedial standpoint. If there's a house or a car or something you want. Well, the way that you go get it is by creating an energetic connection with that in a associated and a dissociated state. So like, for example, if you want a you know, specific car, you go sit in the car, you Feel what the trunk latches look like. You look what the owners, man. You, you get the details that only an owner would have. Not just sitting in a car in the showroom, but like you're, where's the battery? Like if I needed to charge the battery, where's, like you learn the details. You, it's sensory. It's got to be the five senses. You got to smell it. You got to see it. You got to touch it. You got to taste it if you want. You got to, like, it's all there. And then you create a dissociated state where you see yourself away from it. You see yourself experiencing it from a third person perspective away from it. And that energetically that creates this sort of pull now where you can, in thankfulness, you've created a memory in the future. Mm. So if I'm in this place where I'm playing house inside of this, this car that I like, and I'm fully in it, I'm feeling like it's mine. I'm looking at the details. 
I'm creating a future memory that my subconscious can now pull from and be like, yeah, I remember what that's like. Let's get it again. And your identity plays into that because you have to be worthy of the thing that you're wanting. You have to go have the skill sets to make sure that you're not pushing it back away. You know, I've always said that money follows, follows value. You want to make more money, create more value. However, a asterisk to that is that you have to make the money easy to find you. Mm. If you don't have ways to collect money easily, it's not going to drop in your lap in a brick. You know, you got to like make it easier. So we have to do our part to make the velocity of blessing back to us as easy as possible. So that then goes into the identity stuff. It's like I, I uh, shared this story on my most recent episode of stand-up where I talked about, you know, this last quarter in my business has been an interesting one because I've had a banner, banner, 2022 was an incredible year in my business. I reached benchmarks. I didn't ever think I would. I'm really like, I'm set to turn. I could have a, you know, mid seven figure business in a few years very easily. And I've already had, you know, a seven figure business already within this one, barely, but a seven figure one at least in that though, I didn't have a bookkeeper. So all of the expenses and everything, I was trying to like, I go get my taxes, try to get my taxes, and it's a mess. Mm-hmm. And I recognized in the last quarter, I was pushing away energetically more money because I was fear, I was fearing the work it was going to take to manage the process of it because of what that extra business would do for my business. Yeah. And so I share that and I had to become prepared in that so that I now have foundationally the way to make more money without wanting to sabotage myself. Before I hired my very first engineer as an employee, I was shunning energetically more business because it meant more work. And so I hired somebody and all of a sudden I was able to shift and work on my business as opposed to in my business. That we, we have to make it as easy as possible for the universe or God to give us what we want. And part of that's identity. Part of that is knowing what we want very, very descriptively. Like I give the example with the car. You got to know the details of exactly what you want. You got to be a receptor to be able to receive it at the right time. You've got to be open to be able to do it. And uh, then, then it works. So the hard work of success is the management of receiving. <laughs> mm, we get that's... good at receiving and being able to manage that. There's nothing that won't come to us that we want. Man, that's... That's a cool way to frame it. I've never thought about it because I do that a lot, man. I mean, it, and I, I do the same thing. I look at all these, well, it's just like I was telling you about. I mean, the reason why Texas Titan Media has remained not producing all these other shows that I would love to either have a part in or help other people get off the ground is because what you just said, I, I don't want to add more work. I like to maintain what I feel like is freedom, but yet... Because right. I'm just because I'm shunning the help to grow the business elsewhere, then it causes me to stay kind of, kind of locked into this one lane and not doing other things. Well, I'm willing I, to bet, Jason, there's more to it than that too. That's that's the external view, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that you can see and that you can feel out the gate. But I'm willing to bet as well that there is a there's a hubris associated with the fact that you're the best and you don't want to have to like share any of those responsibilities with somebody else. I know I had that. Like I was a I'm still a ridiculously great engineer when it comes to audio and production and I was like I can't teach anybody how to do this. The, the quality would suffer. So there's that little lie that you believe. And then additionally, there's a worthiness issue when it comes to like what would your life look like if you had 10 times the money you have right now? Yeah. That's a a lot of people would like, they just, they want to go buy all the stuff and they don't think about like, Oh, well, how are the people going to handle me differently? How are the, how am I going to look at myself? Where, what options are going to present myself that, to myself that I might not have the stones to say no to mm. like, 
money is a magnifier. And so the sabotage that a lot of people have about their own growth and their own entrepreneurship for creating wealth isn't that they're not able to create it. It's that internally, they see that if I had this extra money, it's going to shine a light into this part of my soul I haven't done the work on, and it's going to cause problems for me. Yeah, I'm going to step away and not deal with it. And so the most... I, I, it's funny. I released a clip this morning from my episode, my most recent episode where I talk about this. I think every man, especially men need to go get rich. Mm. They need to go get rich because it magnifies all of the cobwebs in their soul that they need to clean out. It magnifies the need to understand how to manage energy because that's all money is. It's a currency. It flows in and out. It's energy. You get to deal then with people behaving differently around you because of your resources and the things that you get to discern people better because all of a sudden when you've got a lot of cash, the the leeches come out of the woodwork. You get to lead yourself better because it now has consequence. Like playing small is being poor. Like if you're mm -hmm. poor, you're playing small. I don't give a shit if you think that's mean. It's the truth. If you're poor, you're playing small. You can't do that and expect to have this magnanimous life of ease and luxury and beauty and growth and substance without having to learn how to handle it. Yeah. Don't you think a lot of people use that as an excuse too? They will use their, um, I don't know, their their poverty mindset. They'll just say, "Well, it's just because I'm not I'm not materialistic. I'm not." Is an excuse to not have to get out there and go jump Absolutely. off the dive. They, they just, I can just stay here in my blanket. I see that a lot. And well, I think that, I think that it's, it, it's broadens out with more than just that we have, like, if you look around in our culture right now, there's a lot of blame being put on systemic things. Yep. And I'll leave it at that. You know what I'm referring to? Yep. Yep. Well, I've looked at that. I've always laughed at that. I'm like, <laughs> you can look at any race, any sex, any gender and find someone that has succeeded at the highest level within that frame. Yeah. There are black women that are super, super rich. There are, you know, whatever it is, there's somebody, whatever your little demographic check all the boxes are for you, there's somebody in that world that's ridiculously successful. Okay? Yeah. So there's no excuses then. It's more like the way that I encourage people that get into that mindset when I have an opportunity to help them out of it. It's like, look at life like a game of hold'em. Your cards don't matter. How you play the game matters. I could have been given different, I could have pocket aces, bro. But if the cards don't show that those aces matter and I don't play it right, I'm going to crap out and lose my hand where you might have a two of diamonds and a four of, of hearts and win the pot. Yep. yep. It's how you play the game. Everything comes down to like, you've got to, I wish people would understand that winning is not a sin. Yeah. It's not a sin to win. We have this culture that like likes to, you know, knock people down that have achieved certain things. And it's silly to me. It's like energetically, psychologically, emotionally, when you talk mess on successful people or you poke holes in who they are or what they are or how they've achieved it, you're denying yourself the ability to ever be that person or have those level of results because psychologically and subconsciously, every human will value seeing themselves as a good person over anything. Yep. So if the choice is I'm a good person, but I'm poor, or I'm going to judge myself and I'm really rich, they're going to always be poor and be a good person. Yeah. And that's one of the things you bring up, just kind of like the societal things that are happening. Human nature is such that we don't like to blame the per person looking back at us in the mirror. We don't, it's, it's much easier to, that there, that there was an event. My parents didn't love me enough. Dad didn't give me enough hugs, whatever, the color of my skin, the sex, whatever. Yeah. And, and now it's easy. 
victimhood is easy, but and now we're living in a society where it's reinforced. I mean, not only are you fat, but you're beautiful. And anyone who tells you, even even if it's a doctor telling you, hey, you should lose some weight, that doctor is a fat shaming idiot. Don't listen to him. You be fat. You be you. And I think that this whole idea, I've been really trying to work this out, man, in a positive way to help people realize that this whole idea of you be you, in other words, you be a God into yourself and worship whatever you are and whatever you look like. And to your point, add no value whatsoever. And and then and then to sit and blame other people for why you're adding no value and therefore you're getting no value from this life. It seems that that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. And you mentioned men should be rich and you know, this whole idea, I was working out this thing I might write in my uh, Vitruvian letter, which is my newsletter this week about how, you know, we used to hear in politics, this war on women, this war on women, there's a war on women. Well, we're obviously they're winning. If there's a war on women, they've either won the war or they're winning and men are losing because more men commit suicide, more men die of violence, more men are, are we're, don't, we don't live as young, less men are going to college, less men are in college. Uh, more men are depressed, more men blow their heads off. I mean, if there is, and, and more women are going to college, more women are in the workforce. Women, you get, you take a man and a woman side by side applying for the same job right out of undergrad. The woman is going to, on average, get paid more money. Yep. It's, it, and so this whole, I, there's something going on with men. And then you trickle that down to young men, young boys. And we're in, we're in a world of hurt, dude. And so, I, I think that whenever you say that, when I take this, whenever you say that every man needs to go get rich, I agree. Every man needs to go outside the cave and gather, be a good hunter, be a good survivor, live out your masculinity and be good at what you were made to be good at. And then, then you will add value to the community around you. And they will, and not only you, but the, the world around you that you serve will benefit. But this idea, man, right now where we are, where it's just like, and that's why I like meeting someone like you who takes care of yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, and all these other things, because if we're going to live in this world where we're just going to create this group of just kind of, you know, just what, I don't know what, what you would call it, then eventually reality always wins. And those of us who just maintain the course, we live and we, we live out real truth. We don't try to bend truth to our will. I think we, we ultimately win in the end but it's going to be a it's going to be a, some some interesting battles. That's just a, a little quick rant. That <laughs> for yeah, just, no, I, I love it. I one of the things that I'll add to your rant is that it's right now it's it's easy it's easier than ever to win. Oh, the idiots yeah. are full sight, dude. Like we nobody's we don't have any wolf and sheep's clothing. They're out. Like we know Agreed. who the dummies are. Agree. And I would add to men needing to get rich that they need to get in shape. Oh. Like the weaponization of the body, like having a body that's strong and powerful, learn how to fight. You know, there's, I love that quote. One of my friends, uh, Sean Whalen, says this quote all the time. He says, I would rather be a warrior in the garden than a gardener in the war. Yeah. And it's like, become a dangerous man in all ways and control it. Exactly. When you can control that, you are truly powerful. And the other part, and I think this is why we're seeing this, is that men that aren't controllable aren't manipulatable. Mm-hmm. We're not going to take at face value. Oh, we, we need to take this medicine. We need to do this. This is the truth. The media is telling us, okay. No, we're like, whoa, 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 wait a sec. That doesn't vibe. That doesn't pass the sniff test, bro. And right now is a, 
we're in a very interesting battle, I think, when it comes to society and culture and narrative and, and all of that. You know, the reason why young men are having the problems that they're having is because there's a very small but loud minority that controls the media and controls messaging that are telling them outright lies. Yep. And they're doing the same thing to women. You know, modern day feminism is a lie. Yep. I mean, the idea that, I mean, you see, you see all of these, you know, personalities popping up like Andrew Tate and uh, Pearl and the, who's a woman that, yeah, you know, I know. I love, per- I love pearly things. She's great. Like she's, and, and she says the things that nobody wants to hear that like, you know, the idea that a woman could just, you know, kind of mess around for her twenties and thirties and have a career. And then at 40 expect, a high value man to want to come be a part of her life because of, you know, she put herself first and she did the things she wanted to do. It's not a it's not a high possibility. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's, it's a different conversation. Men, we value things different. Like we value respect more than love. We value intimacy in a different way. Like people have asked me several times, cause I'm a person that I, I believe things, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the hugest fan of Andrew Tate, but a lot of the things that he says, I really resonate with. And one of the things that he talks about is like, for example, like women feeling judged for having a high body count and that that's, you know, sex shaming and that men shouldn't be able to do that. And, you know, sex work is real work. And this whole sort of like commercialization of sex and women not understanding why men would have a problem with this, why we would care and why it would, and there's, you know, countless stories of women that are, you know, dating and they have great relationships. And then all of a sudden the body count thing comes up and some chicks, you know, plowed through a bunch of dudes and the guy's like, yeah, I'm out. Like, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. need that. And they don't understand why. And the reason why is it because traditional relationship, the dynamic of men and women, men want to be great lovers. They want to be considered the gatherer the, or the hunter. They want to be the, the seen as powerful. And in the intimacy of the physical union of of relationship, the more a body count is, the more likely he's not your best. That's right. (laughs) And the guy knows it. Mm -hmm. And so he has to deal with that. And so naturally we just don't go there. Yeah. So bringing that up other than no other reason than that there's a bunch of lies that are being pervasively taught is true that they don't, they don't stand up. And men, I think are the problem. Like the, I think that the assault on men, and truly the assault on women with some of the other transgender aspects of things with sport and whatnot. I think it's just, it's a narrative that's trying to push us to be pliable in the ability to believe lies easily. Yeah. 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 The, the, the effort to make two plus two five has, has never been greater in certainly in my lifetime and watching all this Orwellian stuff come to pass. You know, you mentioned Andrew Tate. The thing that makes it difficult about Andrew Tate is what you just said. There's those nuggets of those themes that he may speak, Speak that that normal everyday guys like you and I who are responsible and don't live a life and don't want to live a life like Andrew Tate, we hear something, we go, God, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And and a great example. So I was having this conversation with my youngest daughter and she goes to see you Boulder. So you can imagine what it's like out there for her to be, you know, a girl that has conservative values and everything in in Boulder. It's like, wow. Um, And we were having this conversation and she, she brought up the question about, well, you know, here's the deal, dad. Why is it that a guy can go out and slay it and he's considered, you know, a player, but a girl is a slut, you know, kind of the old question. I mean, she said, my friends, and that's the, one of the right. things that always is brought up over and over. And it was Andrew Tate who actually made one of his points. It's really hard to disagree with from any side. He said, 
a woman is born with great value from day one. She's a woman. She's to be cherished. She's beautiful. And she can get a man to have sex with her whenever she's ready. She, and that's what I taught yeah. my daughters when they were growing up. It's like, girls, you got to understand something. You hold all the cards. You're the ones that are going to decide whether you give away your virginity or not. It's on you. You know, given some, you know, save for some horrible, horrible circumstances in a normal relationship, you guys hold the cards. It is yours to give. Yeah. It's no yeah. one's to take. And he said, however, a man, he has to earn his value. He, he's, he's not just born. I, here I am. I'm a dude. I have a penis. Let's roll. That's not yep. how it works. Yep. And by the way, I'm not this guy. I never was this guy. But if the guy is a douchebag that's just been slaying it through his 20s and has decided now to slow down and have a, have a chick, and if there are still women that are interested in him and they find out that he was slaying it, well, there's a reason why a lot of women wanted to be with him. Because what women value, he had. There's something he had done. He had he had made himself valuable to a point where all these women, unless he paid for it, but let's well, even if he paid for it, as sad as that is, as he sad as that is, <laughs> if he paid for it, then there's something he had that was of value. And so now we're trying to tear this thing apart. We're making, I, I, I've said this over and over, Bryce, trying to make men or women act more like men is a recipe for disaster. And then it's kind of weird that the feminists would want that. You're wanting to be the thing that you have completely demonized for so long instead of saying, hey, no, we're going to maintain being the, you know, the princesses, the royalty that we are, the cherished things that we were designed to be. We're going to forego that to be like the douchebag that we've, we've just, you know, bashed our whole life. We're going to be more like that. And by God, then we're going to also demand that they accept us for being that thing. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like a recipe for success. Well, the proof is in the pudding. It doesn't work. No. Like yeah. women are more, you know, they struggle more with being miserable and alone. Yeah, in their older ages, as they do that, you know, if they don't, if you're, if if they're not in a, you know, a, a monogamous relationship in their 30s, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to get into one because of just the nat, the, the the it's physiological, man. Like this is a, it's it's how we're made up. It's in the DNA. You can't go against our crocodile brains. There's aspects well, in our brain where it's just like, dude, this is how it's going to be. We can culturally try to act like it's different, but when it's like, I remember seeing this, it was hilarious. I saw this video on TikTok where this, this very large woman was philosophizing about how you're fat phobic if you're not attracted to, you know, overweight women and that there's beautiful overweight women in, in all this. And I'm like, what a convoluted, nonsensical message. Like, first of all, if I'm a homosexual and I'm attracted to my same sex, that's fine. We're all good. If I'm straight, I don't have attraction to that. That's a line that is acceptable. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not into dudes. Okay. Right. I'm also not into big girls. Right. Now, all of a sudden, I'm a fat phobe because I don't like, I don't find that attractive. Like, it's the most, it's, again, it's this sort of, there's, it's, it's coming from everywhere. You know, the idea, and this is, this might be controversial to some, but I don't think for your listeners it will be. From a transgender standpoint, if, if, if they can, if they can convince us that when I look down at my naked body, and I see the appendages of a biological male, and I tell myself that I'm a woman, if I can have that be a reality, and then I can take that delusion, and I can put it out there and make you think I'm a woman, even though that I have all of the things a man would have, 
they can convince us of anything. Mm -hmm. If you are willing to believe such a blatant in-your-face lie, they could tell you that the sky is green. You'd be like, oh, I guess it's green. Looks blue to me, but it must be right. It's green. Yeah. And then you have the whole bending of society around this stuff to try to like, it has nothing to do with trans, for example, transgenderism not being real. Like I fully believe that those are the experiences of some people and I have compassion on that. That must be very difficult to live with that sort of thing. But I also see that there are malicious people that are using that and the sensibilities of kindness that people have to want to be inclusive for people in their struggle to manipulate in a way that is not good. That's one of the things I think is such a shame is that the people that purportedly support the marginalized and those in pain, such as those, like you mentioned, that that less than 1%, that small fraction that suffer from gender dysphoria or whatever the case may be, right. th they think that the people that are quote unquote on their side are in fact on their side when in reality, they're just, you know, I hate, what was it, uh, Stalin that called them useful idiots? I mean, they're just, they're, they're using them as, and we look at this and the, there's so many different groups that are utilized like this whenever those of us who say, yeah, no, no. And this is the thing too, that kind of my message is if, if you are that, I'm not going to try to determine whether or not you are a man or a woman inside and how you feel, but I can tell you this, you were you perfectly and fearfully made. And that's just the way you are. You are yeah. good enough just the way you are. And I wish that message, we're getting to the point where you can't even say that. A, a, a psychologist, you know, a Jordan Peterson, if he had someone coming to him right now and saying, hey, I know I look like a dude, but I think I'm a girl. He's not allowed to look at that person and go, wait, nope. You are in fact your biological sex and you're perfectly made. Now let's unpack some things as to why you might be feeling otherwise. You're not mm -hmm. even, it's getting to the point where you can't even discuss that. And I think that's scary and that's not doing a service to the individual in question. That's what's really kind of, um, I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's a tough time. And then again, going back to the whole idea of this demonization of men, I think we're in a really screwy spot, but the good news is I think more and more people um, are starting to speak up and it doesn't have to be in a militant way. It can just be in a, like, look, I mean, this is, we're all we're doing is speaking universal truths that have been such for over 2000 years of, you know, the civilized world. And that's another thing, man, that's so frustrating. It's like, okay, just because I won't accept immediately that the sky is purple, which you decided 15 minutes ago, and somehow I'm, the, the immoral one, yet you're coming to me saying, no, you must believe that and, and deny what all of human civilization has denied right, right now. Yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough world to get along in. So well, I, I, I believe I'm an optimist and I believe that the things are falling to where we will go back to a sense of, of normalcy. Is, I mean, we're gonna, it's going to get a little bit more weird still, but like, you know, things like Elon Musk buying Twitter, Twitter is a completely different experience than it used to be. Yep. And we can say things like that, that like, look, I can, I can honor your experience. I can call you the name you want me to call you. I can call you the pronouns, but, but like, that's where it ends. I don't have to buy into any sort of like definition of what your experience is. Right. I'll honor your experience and I'll play by your rules, but I don't have to have those rules now be the rules. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where it gets interesting. And that has to do, there's a lot of that that's not just with transgender. That's a lot of like systemic racism stuff, a lot of like demonization of whiteness. Yeah. There's a there's a whole bunch of that that where it's like, well, I don't know how you could see that, but okay, do you, bro. I'm going to yeah. do me. Right. I'll bring this back. That's one of the reasons why it's so easy to win.
Yeah. Strong, confident, successful men are undeniable. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're undeniable. Like we can't, well, there's, there's a lot of heat against us, but like it shines like a lighthouse yeah. when you speak. That's why somebody like Andrew Tate could be so famous so quickly is because he spoke these simple, raw, ra like very in your face truths that young men especially have been dying to hear. Yeah. Because their sensibilities tell them this isn't, that's not right. That's not yeah. true. No, it is. And then, like, somebody like Andrew Tate comes up, well, what's going on here? And he says this thing. And yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, that's, of course that's true. Yeah. And then he yeah. has all the markers of, like, why you would believe him. He's successful. He's in shape. He's a, he knows how to fight. He's a world champion kickboxer. He's got all these things that, well, that guy did harder work to develop who he is than you did with your silly idea. I think he's more worthy of listening to than this one over here that's just this gelatin of a person that has soft ideas and everything is about feelings and facts don't matter and there's no rationale or any sort of like logical thing presented. It's all just whimsical. Yeah. And you know, one of my favorite scenes, one of my favorite movie scenes that kind of ties into what we're talking about here is in 300, whenever the Spartans come up against or come up, not against, but come to this other band of like, you know, merchants and artisans or whatever that have band together kind of a little militia yeah. it's a huge group of people and the guy tells leonidas he said what well, this is all you have is 300 and leonidas looks across his men he's like you what did you do and you what were you you what were you yep and then he finally says you know sparta's you know whatever and they all hua, hua. it's like you see i have brought 300 warriors you have brought none and mm -hmm. i think we're in a point where you know men hopefully will take that. And by the way, that movie shows, look how he cherished and relied on his wife for counsel, yep. a good queen. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm lucky, dude. Uh, I, I'm sure you would say the same thing. I am married to a woman who doesn't need me, but wants me. She yep. is a badass. She's a successful entrepreneur. She is a, she, I, I'm, I mean, my wife is my hero. I freaking adore her. I cherish her. And that's what that movie, you know, in that culture, that's how Leonidas, you know, looked at his bride and, but these men, they were few in number and that's what we are. I mean, there are, there are a few men that are, that are really willing to take up and be the man we're called to be. And I hope you're right, man. I hope that we kind of get back to this balance where that is respected that because I say, I cherish you, I adore you. I, I, yes, I want to protect you, but I'm going to do it with your counsel that that's an okay thing. That doesn't mean I'm demeaning you. I, I hope we can get back to a place like that. Well, I think we already are. There's park, park, we're seeing there's pockets of that where that is absolutely the standard. That, and it's a, it's a, it's a two-sided thing in that like one of, the, one of the benefits of the conversation regarding toxic masculinity or what some name to be toxic masculinity is the reality that to masculinity is not toxic at all. There's, there's toxic, it's an adjective. Yeah. There can be toxic experiences of masculinity, but that doesn't mean that masculinity itself is toxic. And there can be same with femininity and, and all sorts of other, you know, behavioral aspects that can be to toxic. But at the same time, like it's illuminating that I think it's like a pendulum swing. It's like there's a lot of, you know, sensitive men are recognizing the need to express emotion. They're recognizing the need to compete. They're recognizing the need for brotherhood and tribal connection where you have like other men that aren't your family that you can go 
and rub shoulders with, you can compete with, you can bust their balls, you can laugh, you have community there, and then you get your cup filled, and then you come home and you lead from that place. We're seeing this, like we're, we're having a lot of return to sort of old school thinking, and we're recreating it in the modern world, and I absolutely love it. Yeah. I recently was able to join, um, there's a good friend of mine, his name is Keith Yaki, and uh, he runs a program called Married Game, which is a marital help for men that are having issues with their wives and attraction and things. And he recognized this sense of brotherhood. So he put together this brotherhood that was called the Ascend Brotherhood. And we get together once a month in California. We go out to Dana Point. We play games on the beach. We go go-kart racing. We do cold plunges together. We have share, we have sharing time. And like, I know that sounds silly, but it's like we go and we fill our cups as men and we come home as stronger men, yeah. knowing that we have the back. Like that's one of the ways that men have been truly failing as we've been isolated from other powerful men. Agree. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a, that's one of the reasons why, you know, people aren't religious that much anymore. Religion and community and religion is one of the places where you get access to powerful men. Um, they're not as in shape as they were anymore. Competition in sport is another way to get access to, you know, where you push, persevere and you push through um, and you have access to powerful men. I advise anybody that is a man that's, look, that's, that's needing that to just, you know, reach out of their comfort zone and reach out to men in their area that are powerful and, and create your own tribes. You know, it used to be that tribes were required for us to survive. They're not anymore. We can survive without a tribe, but we are required to have tribes to be able to thrive. And the changes that we can make in this world are through thriving as men. Like we, the world is aching for strong leadership. Agree. And we're all leaders in our own way. We just have to lead ourselves first. Brother, very well said. Well, Bryce, we could go on. I knew I knew it'd be like this. I knew it'd be like this. This is so awesome. This has been such fun. a fun conversation, dude. And you know, I you know this if this in my opinion, and I have this every once in a while on this podcast. This is an example of iron sharpening iron, my brother. And uh, I'm so very thankful that you took this time. Now, before I let you go, where can people find you? Where can they learn more about you? Where can they consume your comedy? I, I, I you, you are a talented comedian. Just how do people stay in touch with you, man? So I appreciate that. So the simplest way is I have a splash page at BricePrescottComedy.com. And it has the links to all of my podcasts. It's got all of my socials, TikTok, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all that. It even has a link there for my actual website, which is BricePrescott.com, where I talk about my business. Um, if that's too confusing, just go to at Bryce Prescott on Instagram and you'll see most of my stuff there. I, I, I curate, a, I, I think I'm a good follow. I curate a pretty entertaining page, I think. I could not agree more, brother. You, you, you got me sucked in and now I got you on my <laughs> show. And so, and there I hope, go. I hope that you will not be a stranger, man. You're welcome on the Jason Wright show. Any, anytime and anything I can do to, to help, you know, kind of just give you that boost, boost that push, hold those arms up, brother. I'm there for you, man. Absolutely, brother. I, I see us doing this several more times over the years, buddy. I love it. All right, Bryce, thanks so much for joining us. Everyone out there watching on the YouTube channel or listening, thank you so much for joining us on the Jason Wright Show. Remember, until we meet again, always continue to endeavor to improve. Always and always, I'm Jason, he's Bryce, and we are out. Well, that does it for this episode of the Jason Wright Show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Fourth Wall did the music. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonwrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, 
go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out. Thank you.